Sometimes you just need a quick overview of the news. Meantime, it was chaos today at the Chicago City Council. A Chicago cop with a controversial past is running for judge. Other times you're looking for a deeper understanding of what's going on in the city. Wow, that's so, no one has asked me that question. The Rundown Podcast has all of that, and it's Chicago-based, so you know what's up in your neighborhood and across town. Listen to The Rundown wherever you get your podcasts or at wbez.org slash rundown. Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The EU parliamentary elections gave everyone some food for thought. Let's chew on some of the lessons learned with Quinn Slobodian. He is a professor of history at Wellesley College and the author of Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. Thanks for joining us, Quinn Slobodian. Happy to be here. Uh, You know, I think a lot of people look at the headlines and the takeaways and they see people fleeing the mainstream parties in the EU and say, well, this is bad for stability. It's bad for the EU. But there's another school of thought out there that seems to be saying, well, participation was way up at the EU elections. This could be good for the EU. There are new people doing new thinking on both sides of the equation. Um, how do you feel about the way this EU parliamentary election went? I mean, I think the most significant thing about it is that we're talking about it at all. I mean, usually these European parliament elections come and go, and they're considered a kind of sideshow, often kind of protest parties, kind of very low participation. And yet, and yet here we are, you know, to speaking in an American radio station about the European parliament elections. And the reason we are is that they're being seen now maybe for the first time as being a place where the big issues about European democracy are being hashed out. So I think that the the huge uptick in, in turnout, the fact that you had the highest turnout in almost every country ever, is a sign actually that, that things are going well. The political scientist David Runciman has a good point, which is that you know, the thing about democracy is when it looks like it's not going well, it's often the moments that it is going well because everyone is trying to have their voice heard. And I think this is one of those moments where the cacophony is actually a good thing. Well, what does the cacophony mean for the European Union? Because there seemed to be so much negativity around the EU and Brexit and people debating whether they want to be a part of this thing or not. Um, do, does this Is there something there that people want to be a part of or, or make different for the future? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think I think there is evidence that there is. I mean, the one thing that everyone was primed for, especially I think in the United States, was this sort of ongoing tsunami of, you know, what is often called right-wing populism. And that tsunami didn't happen. What we had instead was a kind of a consolidation in in some countries definitely of right-wing parties, but also a really strong expression of support for things like green parties, right? Across across the spectrum, and especially in places like Germany and places like Ireland, and then actually a return of support for socialist parties in places like Portugal and Spain. So those people, and they are disproportionately young people coming out voting green and voting socialist, are expressing a kind of um, confidence in the European project, I think. They want, you know, they're expressing a desire to turn the Europe that they've grown up with harder, more towards things like addressing climate change, problems of inequality. So those, I think, are are very good sort of vital signs coming from the European landscape. Well, how do you do something like uh, battle inequality in the European Union? That, that, that doesn't seem to be um, 
what it's built for? Well, I think it's the question of what Europe is, is, is always in the process of unfolding. I mean, people like to portray Europe as a kind of a cold machine of, of rules and laws that, you know, prevents anyone from doing anything towards redistribution or, or moving towards the left. And that's just not always true. I mean, the fact that socialists won in Portugal is, is meaningful because Portugal has been quietly sort of doing some of these left-wing things politically, and, and Brussels has been allowing them to do it. Um, the sort of supposedly hardcore rule-oriented attitude of, of Europe can be exaggerated. And I think the, the, the strongest argument is that if pushed democratically, um, Brussels and Frankfurt may be forced to kind of loosen up and allow themselves to be pushed leftward politically. I think that's not out of the question. That Europe is not a kind of foregone conclusion in terms of its politics, and it remains open to pressure. Um, why do you think so many people, and big chunks of people in Italy, France, and uh, the and Britain, they all vote for these the, the right wing parties. They're they're voting for like a third a third of the people vote for right wing parties in these places. Well, I mean, the promise that is offered by something like the Brexit Party and the National Rally Party in France and the Lega in Italy is this promise of autonomy and independence. Right? There's a belief that if you just gain some kind of a political leverage and political control, then all that is wrong with the world will be made right and justice will be restored, national pride, etc. So there's a, real, there's a real desire to repress economic reality, I think, and economic interdependence. The fact is, when Britain leaves the European Union, they're still going to be in a close relationship with the European Union. So the, the desire for political control can often be used as a way to like forget about the fact that Economically, the whole continent is bound up with itself and with the UK too, and that autonomy is usually a kind of a false, a false dream, unfortunately. And sort of piecemeal decisions within the framework of the EU are probably going to get you further than the outright demand for freedom, which is as false for the UK or Italy and France as it was for countries coming out of empire in the 1960s. There's a lot of similarities there. It is interesting to note that there, while the, the countries we just mentioned had pretty strong showings by the right wing, there were some places where they lost and then they, they went down. They, they just didn't mm-hmm. uh, maintain or stay the same. There were some losers there. Yeah, I mean it seems that the, the sort of onward march of, of support for far-right parties seems to be stalling out a bit right now, especially in places like Germany and Austria where – Austrian Freedom Party, which had been part of the coalition government until a few days ago, was hit very hard by a very meaningful scandal whereby the leader of the Austrian Freedom Party was shown to be um, drunk on Red Bull and vodka in Ibiza, offering up the public uh, media station to Russian oligarchs. And the the sort of venality of some of the far-right parties was made pretty clear for, I think, a lot of Austrians. And that spilled over to the Alternative for Germany party, the AFD in Germany, which is also a kind of right-wing libertarian party. And it lost a lot of credibility, I think, with this with this scandal. So those kind of things are also really heavily dependent on age. If you look at what young people are voting for, they really are going for the, the Green parties. They really are going for the socialist parties. And the 
fact is that those people haven't really been involved in European parliamentary politics much before. And if they come in, I think there is the possibility of them stanching this this movement towards the right that we've all been rightfully fearful of. Um, do you think that there are enough people freaked out about Russian participation in political parties now in, in Europe? I don't see that really as being a big theme. I mean, I think that most of the, the concern is pretty homegrown. I think that I think that what we're seeing is you have a kind of middle-aged, middle-class constituency that fears that their privileges are going to be taken from them. And in that fear, they're swinging to the right. And then opposing them, you have younger people, you have women, people of color, immigrants, who are already living pretty precarious lives, often paycheck to paycheck. And they are worried that they're going to continue living in this state of precariousness forever. And they tend to be voting not for those right-wing parties that are often defined against women and against people of color. And so they're, they're voting for the more left-wing parties. So I think in that sense, what we see is it it's really doesn't require any narrative of outside involvement. It's really, it's really homegrown problems, and it's often generational problems. People who have come of age since the early 2000s, when those stable jobs and those union jobs aren't there anymore, and they look at socialist parties social democratic parties like the SPD in Germany, and they blame them in part and in part fairly. So that's where we see this hemorrhaging of support for things like the SPD in Germany and the Socialist Party in France. Young people feel like they've been betrayed by those parties. I'm talking with Quinn Slobodian. He's from Wellesley College and the author of Globalist, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. We're talking about the EU parliamentary elections and some of the lessons learned there. Coming up in a few moments, we'll have a Chicago physician who just left Idlib, Syria yesterday, and we'll talk about the attacks on medical facilities there in a few moments. I did want to say something about how the... um, the EU elections are having an effect on British politics. I noticed that uh, Jeremy Corbyn seems determined now to to back a referendum on the Brexit deal, and really the uh, Labour Party to get you know was losing bad to the Lib Dems and all sorts of other people who got a lot more votes. Are they? Is this going to make Labour? Um, run hard now for for this uh, idea of a referendum? Well, I don't know how much it will be able to change for them, right? Because I think that the seemingly wishy-washy position of the Labour Party is actually based on something quite deeply felt. And that is, first, a kind of fear that, as you were saying before, that the European is, Union is kind of built for austerity and it's built for competition and not built for class politics and solidarity. I mean, Corbyn has been opposed to the, to the, was opposed to the European Union in the 70s and remains ambivalent about it. And second is a kind of a commitment to the democratic process. I mean, such as it was, the referendum was won by leave. And I think partially for good reasons, Labour has not been able to kind of own a, a call for remain or a call for a second referendum because they don't want to be seen as sort of slapping the average leave voter in the face. And they've been trying to play it both ways. And unfortunately, it's not a good time to play it both ways. And in that sense, the Lib Dems, by being the remain party, were able to pick up the support, whereas the leavers didn't, you know, go for the wishy-washy labor position, but they went for the the self-declared Brexit party position. So it's it's a tough one, I think. They're kind of between two chairs, but it's, I think it's hard for them to stay true to their principles. Um, 
by and and still go hard on the idea that the original referendum should be negated. Are there other things that you looked at, uh, political effects that happened from the EU election that you think people are maybe overlooking? Well, I mean, the the vanish vanishing of the Conservative Party, the, the British Tories, is definitely significant, right? I mean, the heir apparent of the European Council was, or the European Commission was this guy, Manfred Weber, who is unlikely to ascend to the the top post now. What that means is that maybe we won't have a German as number one in the European Commission. Right now, there is a hard push for a German as the head of the European Central Bank. My feeling, and I say this as someone who has close ties to Germany and is a German historian, is that the European Union would be helped if there wasn't a German at the head of either the Commission or the bank. I think that what we need to feel to restore the kind of democratic vitality of the European Union is that the smaller countries have a voice at the top level. Poland and Hungary and Italy need to not feel like colonies of Germany, which I think they often do. And if we keep having German faces sort of at the top of the pyramid, then, or if we put some in place now, I don't think that it's going to bode well for the kind of the health and the buy-in at a symbolic level into the European project, which is really what we need right now. Does Germany really still have all the power in, in the EU, though? Well, this is the question, right? How do they exercise that power? I think that the argument has been that that the people who have been running the European Central Bank have been kind of using German principles um, over the years, whether it's in in response to Greece or Italy or Portugal, sort of imposing austerity and, and a rules-based attitude towards economics. Famously, one of the former heads of the European Central Bank declared himself a kind of a German neoliberal in spirit. So I think they have been operating effectively behind the scenes as the kind of, as it's been often said, the reluctant hegemon in Europe. And I think they, they should be even more reluctant. I mean, they need to... They need to open themselves up to what's going on. And unfortunately, the leadership in Germany right now, the Christian Democrats, is very much part of that mainline center-right political force that has just been punished in this this election, right? I mean, it's precisely that kind of middle ground that has been washed away. So I think that Germany needs to be what is often described in the spirit of Gorbachev as a kind of a hero of retreat. They need to sort of allow themselves to be modest and and to move into the background of what they actually care for, which is the long-term survival of the European Union is going to stand the test of time. Quinn Slobodian is a history professor at Wellesley College. He's the author of Globalist, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the EU parliamentary elections. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about Idlib, Syria, under siege by Russian and Syrian warplanes. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Idlib is the last opposition stronghold in Syria. A month ago, Russian and Syrian jets began bombing Idlib in an effort to retake the territory. Over 200 civilians are dead, around 700 are injured. Medical facilities are being targeted again in Syria. Chicago physician Zahir Salul just left Idlib yesterday. He's in Turkey now. Dr. Salul is co-founder of MedGlobal. He's a past president of the Syrian American Medical Society. Thanks a lot for joining me, Dr. Salul. Well, thank you, Jerome. Um, yeah, it was a really tough uh, trip to Idlib, um, but just came back uh, to Turkey and trying to recover from what I've seen. You know, can you describe what Idlib is really like now? Because I bet it, it, it's nothing like Idlib used to be. Whenever I read about it, I hear how, well, this is where all the other opposition people came to and the population doubled and um, there's all sorts of displacement now within Idlib. Uh, what, what is that like? I mean, Idlib is a, a province in the northwest of Syria. Um, it is uh, the last um, stronghold of the Syrian rebels. Um, it had a population of about one million, one million, million and a half before the crisis, uh, which uh, um, increased to about three million because uh, you had large number of uh, internally displaced people who came to Idlib uh, for protection uh, from cities like Aleppo, Ghouta, Dara'a, Homs, and other places. So you have 50% of the population in the Idlib province who are IDPs, about 1 million children. Um, there are several cities in Idlib. I visited Idlib city, which is the capital, which has a population of about 500,000. I visited a city called Ariha, a city called Marat Narman, a city called Haas, and uh, uh, Kaframbol. And uh, all of them have um, um, the impact of the of the bombing. I mean, in, in, in Idlib city, you had many buildings who were destroyed, uh, but the market was busy and people were um, in the streets. Uh, the, the Idlib city by itself has not been bombed for more than um, uh, uh, 10 months or so. Um, some of the cities that I visited were nearly deserted. Um, buildings are completely destroyed, including hospitals. Uh, and schools and uh, civilian structures and markets. Uh, so it's like you're entering ghost towns. Uh, it's like you're, you know, going into these uh, post-apocalyptical uh, movie scenes where uh, you have only few people in the in the streets and everything else around you is destroyed. Um, one of the cities that I visited, the city of Kaframbol, um, they we wanted to check on on the hospital, and uh, then we were warned that uh, there is. Uh, um, a fighter jet on the side looks like it was scouting the the city and trying to bomb it. Uh, so and we, they told us to leave the city right away. We left and luckily uh, we were spared from the targeting because right after we left the same area that our car was there was hit with the direct bomb. Uh, one wow. of the other city that we visited was the city of Ariha and they had. Uh, large market and i told the the people that it looks like it's a uh, bustling with activity and the situation is calm and we were told that uh, they would not that the city was not targeted since last year right after we left there was a huge massacre where you had a missile fired from another fighter jet and about seven uh, civilians were killed including a mother and her three children um, so it's it's a very difficult situation uh, people are scared people think that the world is not paying attention to what's happening uh, to that province, and uh, we're expecting the worst with another wave of displacement. 
You know, one of the things I've been reading about is the targeting of medical facilities in Idlib. And I was reading in a Sky News report, they say that the WHO said there were 20 attacks on 18 different medical facilities in Idlib in the last three weeks. So like every day there is a medical facility targeted in Idlib. Uh, this is something that we have seen in the Syrian uh, war uh, um, that we have not witnessed in any other world uh, or in any other uh, civil war or war in the past, which is the systematic targeting of healthcare facilities. Um, and as you know, the medical neutrality or protection of hospitals, ambulances, and healthcare providers in the time of war is something that is part of the international norms. It's part of international humanitarian law. Uh, Geneva Conventions, um, the core uh, um, component of it is protection of healthcare facilities and doctors and ambulances in the time of war. So if you are a doctor and treating the enemies who are injured, then you are not supposed to be targeted. What we're seeing in the Syria is the opposite. And we're talking about um, a permanent member of the Security Council, which is Russia, that is implicated in the bombing of hospitals. Um, in the last 18 uh, in the last 18 days, 18 hospitals were bombed according to the World Health Organization. In the last eight years, 550 hospitals were targeted and bombed according to Physicians for Human Rights. 890 doctors and nurses were killed uh, in Syria. And this is the tragedy that no one is talking about. And if the, if we're talking about it, then not, no one is doing something to prevent it from. Uh, further escalating. And that led to huge flight of uh, doctors and nurses from Syria. You had shortage of uh, specialists. And this is also undermining medical neutrality that we all, um, it's part of the medical norms and the international norms for long, more than 150 years. When you uh, bomb a hospital, that means you are displacing the population in the area because people can tolerate bombs um, and the missiles but they cannot tolerate that their kid is sick and they have fever or abdominal pain and there's no doctor or nurses who can provide medical care, basic medical care to them. The 18 hospitals that we're talking about that were bombed in southern Idlib in the last 18 days were providing health care to more than 250,000 people. And that's why we had a wave of displacement to northern Idlib in the last four weeks of about 200,000 people. Uh, so this situation cannot be sustained, and the Secu United Nations Security Council should uh, start uh, some investigation about who is the culprit, which everyone knows, uh, everyone points to the Syrian regime and the Russian, and what can be done to have accountability uh, so these uh, attacks uh, uh, can be prevented from happening again. I'm talking with Dr. Zahir Salul. He just left Idlib and is in Turkey. And Dr. Salul is co-founder of MedGlobal and a past president of the Syrian American Medical Society. And I wanted to say something about who's in charge in Idlib and what it's uh, who's running what. Uh, people talk about this former Al-Qaeda-linked group, Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, HTS, and they are the dominant um, armed group in 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 uh, Idlib, and they're talking uh, uh, to you know they're calling for Turkey to get more involved in Idlib. Uh, what what is that like to be in a place where I don't know militants are running the show? I mean, people expect that you will see these militants everywhere. <laughs> Frankly, I did not see uh, militants uh, in um, uh, Idlib city or. Ariha or Marat Norman, you have some roadblocks sometimes which you, which are manned by uh, people who are from this uh, 
um, terrorist organization, Hayat um, Tahrir uh, al-Sham. In general, the population um, are very uh, moderate and they they have a vibrant civic society and they don't don't like uh, the practices of uh, this uh, um, rebel group. Um, and um, the, the problem that they are stuck. Uh, they cannot uh, change the situation. Um, the, the area is an, an, in war. This um, organization, HTS, uh, which is linked to Al-Qaeda, um, has uh, weapons, have the upper hand right now in Idlib. Um, and uh, the, the, the civilians cannot change that. Uh, so they have to live with that. Uh, but I, I can tell you that the super majority of the people in Idlib uh, hate uh, the situation, hate the organization, and they want to have a better um, uh, place from what they are right now, where they have a more democratic uh, 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 life and more freedom and uh, more vibrant civic society. And, uh, and um, um, I, I was surprised the fact that uh, we, we have very active uh, organizations on the women's side and the youth sides, uh, many volunteers, uh, people like me and you, Jerome, who are asp- aspiring for a better life for them and their children, but they're stuck in this situation. I wonder if you could say something about what is the role of Turkey here, because um, HTS uh, asked Turkey to come in and intervene and stop Russia and Syria from doing what they're doing. And it would seem like Turkey has a pretty good motive for doing that if they don't want these three million people to come to to to, uh, to Turkey to get forced out in of Idlib into Turkey. That would seem to be a motivating factor. But um, it sounds like Turkey is um, kind of ambivalent right now. Um, that's kind of surprising. Uh, you are right. First of all, you have this uh, agreement between Turkey, Iran, and Russia. Uh, in Sochi, Russia, I mean, it's called Sochi Agreement, uh, which is part of the Astana understanding that Idlib will be protected. Uh, the situation will continue to be as is until we have a political settlement in Syria, which did not happen, unfortunately. Even Turkey has some observation points in southern Idlib to prevent the escalation. They had a demilitarized zone. Uh, of course, all of these uh, pieces of this uh, agreement between Iran and Turkey and Russia uh, has been uh, dismantled in the last few four weeks. And you have now bombing of the demilitarized zone by the uh, Syrian regime and the Russians. And it looks like Turkey is not able to stop that. I mean, they're trying. Uh, I think they had uh, some contact with the Russians. They're trying to uh, apply pressure on the international community to pay attention. Because if you have this large wave of displacement of uh, one to two million of Syrians on the Turkish border, that will not only hurt Turkey, but it can create another wave of refugees to Europe. And we know what happened with the large wave of Syrian refugees to Europe a few years ago, where you had um, you know, reaction that uh, com- near completely destroyed the, the whole concept of the European Union, where you had the surge of anti-refugee, anti-immigrant sen- uh, sentiment, you had the rise of hate, hate group, you had terrorism, all of these things that happened. So I think to, to the interest of the European Union, of the whole world, and, and Turkey, of course, to stop, to stop these atrocities that are happening in Idlib and to stop uh, another uh, further uh, escalation of the crisis. Well, it doesn't seem like there's a sense of urgency about this right now in, in Europe or, or the United States. Of, uh, what, what is it going to take here? Um, um, what we have seen in the Syrian crisis, uh, that the international community lags uh, in terms of reaction behind what's happening on the ground. One of the reasons that uh, my organization, MedGlobal, um, 
uh, were present in Idlib, and I went uh, to see um, and and talk to people and to assess the situation, is to see w what can be done uh, to help to alleviate the suffering of the people and also to raise the voice of the people in Idlib so the international community can hear. Uh, and what I can tell you, and I hope that my government is listening, uh, and I know that we have good people, people in my government, that they care about the plight of the civilians, and also they care about interest. And I think our interest will be um, um, undermined by what's happening in Idlib, because that will create a huge crisis that will destabilize the whole region, and also uh, feeds into the extremism that is present in some areas in, in, in the region. Um, so I hope that people are listening. What's happening in Idlib right now is dangerous. Uh, it is catastrophic. That could turn to be the worst uh, uh, humanitarian crisis in the 21st century, according to the, to the United Nations Chief of, of Humanitarian Affairs. What's happening in, in Idlib right now is not sustainable. It's dangerous, and it has to be stopped. And uh, I th it doesn't take more than uh, tweets, <laughs> like what happened last time when we had similar situation in Idlib by President Trump, uh, when he tweeted that the people of Idlib should be protected. Um, and uh, suddenly Russians and, uh, and uh, Syrian uh, aggression stopped. Uh, I think a phone call or tweet by President Trump will help maybe into uh, uh, stopping this uh, um, um, catastrophic situation. Do you have a story of someone you met in Idlib that is sticking with you that uh, you'll be telling people about when you get back? I mean, too many stories. Uh, I mean, the story that uh, that stuck in my mind is one of the physician that uh, works uh, uh, in Idlib city, but he travels every day to his village. His village is uh, the city of Haas. Um, that's the same city that I visited, uh, and I met with him and his family. He has a young child, uh, one and a half years, uh, only one year and a half. And uh, every time he hears the sound of a uh, helicopter, he goes and he hides under the chair. Um, because every time uh, when, you have, when you're hitting helicopter in Syria, that means there's a bomb that is hitting somewhere. And for this young child uh, to connect uh, hearing the sound of helicopter or fighter jets with uh, with um, with bombing and destruction and fear uh, is something is uh, that we cannot imagine in Chicago and in the United States. But this is not only unique to this child; it's unique. It's it's common uh, to to many children, to one million children in, in Idlib, that they are witnessing the bombing and the missiles and the destruction of their hospitals and schools and markets every day. Uh, these scars, by the way, Jerome will stay with them forever, and that will lead. Uh, to future crisis in the Middle East, when you have a generation that is raised on 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 this uh, violence, uh, who know nothing but but uh, destruction and lack of normalcy, who cannot go to school because um, uh, their schools are destroyed. I saw one of the displaced uh, young uh, children uh, in um, in one of these uh, ragtag tents um, in northern Idlib, who uh, was displaced from uh, northern Hama. And he was very sad, and I asked him, why, why are you sad? He said that he was in school, and uh, he was supposed to receive his uh, um, certificate at the end of the year, and um, his school was bombed, and he was forced to be displaced three days before the end of the school. And he wanted to see his certificate and to show it to his father and to his mother because he was proud of his accomplishment in the school. So um, sometimes we talk about these numbers of one million and three million of people um, but beyond these numbers, you have 
um, painful story for every person uh, that is affected by the crisis. Yesterday in the city of Ariha, you had one mother and her three children who were killed in the bombing in the, in the market. Um, it's a terrible situation. Uh, I, I hope that uh, we um, connect to the people of, uh, of Idlib. They are good people. Uh, they are like us and uh, that we try to do something uh, to stop uh, this catastrophe from um, um, continuing. Dr. Zahir Salul just left Idlib. He's in Turkey now. He's co-founder of MedGlobal and a past president of the Syrian American Medical Society. Thanks a lot for joining us and talking about the situation in Idlib, Syria. Thank you, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll hear about some new research on how people use media in the Middle East. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. How people use and receive media changes rapidly these days. Northwestern University in Qatar is tracking media use in the Middle East. Their latest Seven Nations survey is just out. Let's talk about it with Everett Dennis. He is with me, and he's dean and CEO of Northwestern University in Qatar and a journalism professor at Medill. Thanks a lot for joining us, Everett. Jerome, thanks for having me. How did you guys start doing this survey in the first place? Well, Northwestern set up a campus in Doha, Qatar in 2008 and was moving along nicely. I came in 2011 and one of the first things I observed is we didn't know much about the media of the region, how people were using it, the difference between legacy and new media social media, and we wanted to know what people were actually using. So we were training our students to work in that environment. We needed to know more. So it was also at the time of the Arab Spring, and there was a lot of interest in social media and the role of social media in igniting the Arab Spring. So we went into the field, and we picked at first eight countries and and then moved it down to seven from Egypt all the way across uh, to the Gulf and did studies with uh, about a 1,000 people in each country, survey research, and generated our first report, Media Use in the Middle East, which then became part of the World Internet Project. It's really looking a lot at the role of the Internet. It covers all media, and we've learned a lot from it. I'll bet. I mean, doing it since 2011, what changes have there been? What would the big ones be? Well, really, the rise of social media. Social media was just uh, beginning, really, in uh, 2011 and 12, at the time of the Arab Spring. And uh, the role of Facebook and uh, Twitter at that time was significant. Uh, but that's changed, and uh, we've seen a, a real growth of social media. Also, there's been a yearning for freedom of expression that first came to light, I suppose, in the Arab uprisings in spring of 20. 10 and 2011, and we've seen that uh, both move backwards and forwards. Uh, we were very interested in censorship and uh, the degree to which people have freedom of expression, and we've you know learned a lot about those things. The role of television in the region is very strong. People are producing more and more of their own content. There's more in the Arabic language than there used to be, but at the same time, there's a great deal of content and information and programming that comes in from the West and from you know North America, Hollywood, and, and other parts as well. 
One of the interesting things you do in the survey is cultural. You ask people about uh, how conservative or progressive they are and how that equates with their media usage. Tell us some about that. Well, yes, because it's a very conservative region in many ways, the Muslim faith, and this being the holy month of Ramadan, people are very modest about certain topics. And so uh, that's something one looks at in terms of uh, dress, in terms of uh, how people relate to each other, the role of women, and all that 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 portends. And so we do look at that. And uh, the fact that films and television from the Arab world are perceived as very good for morality, while nationals and in these regions, say the content from the U.S. and Hollywood can also be good for morality. And 10 years ago, they were really saying the content from the West was really uh, suspect. And uh, I think the issue is uh, how does one respect another culture and how does that culture cope with change, change in attitudes toward sexuality, uh, attitudes toward the role of women in society, and many others. Well, what do you think happened there with the U.S. being in the Western media being seen as okay and good for morality? Well, I think what happened is a greater openness. There's more interest now in freedom of expression. And I think it came to the head, I think, when all of these countries were really controlled by autocrats, some still are for sure, there was a tendency to not focus very much on what you could and couldn't say, and it was a lot of uh, resistance. Social media, I think, broke that through. A lot of things one can say on social media without being identified with some of the social media channels, and that's led people to be a lot more open and free. I think they certainly take on consumer issues and issues of everyday life in a robust way that probably wasn't true so much before that. And it also gives them an impetus for change and to understand the world is changing and they want and need to change as well. I'm talking with Everett Dennis from Northwestern University in Qatar, and we're discussing their seven-country media survey of the Middle East. What's it like there in Qatar? Because I imagine you're receiving students from the region, but Qatar's media usage looks different than other places. And you've got a little section on Qatar itself, and there's a bit more openness there, big numbers on speaking out about politics, and it's the only country that watches 30% Netflix. There's all sorts of different things about Qatar. Well, it's more progressive than many of the other Arab states in the region. It's also one of the most uh, Internet-connected countries in the world. In fact, it's number one. It has the highest Internet penetration in the world, and the UAE is also close behind. So it's a highly sophisticated society with every technological device you would want. Doha is a city of high-rise buildings and museums and hospitals and schools and universities. At the same time, in that very modern culture, you also have the traditional dress. You have camel races. You have all kinds of, of artifacts of the old culture as well. But there's a tendency since the blockade of Qatar, which happened in June of 2017, for the country to take the attitude is we want to be known as a place that is progressive and free and open to the rest of the world. So all of a sudden, visas for 80 countries were issued to anybody who wants to go to the airport. Uh, there's a much more uh, robust uh, attitude about films 
problems and about press coverage and other kinds of issues. Uh, and part of this relates to the fact that Qatar will host the 2022 World Cup, and there's a tendency to want to get ready for that extraordinary event when the world, you know, comes to their doorstep and they need to feel that they can handle it. And so that's part of it. It's a highly educated country. Uh, it's a very wealthy country. It's technologically very sophisticated. The countries in the region that are less so tend to be poorer countries with less access to smartphones and other devices that I think are a kind of linchpin in this whole push toward a change and openness. You know, in Qatar, there seems to be some interest in uh, Shahid, a streaming leader in Qatar. It's it's beating out Netflix and uh, does in the whole region. Tell us something about that. Well, I think all kinds of um, locally produced and regionally produced programming is really uh, attracting attention. There's a robust and growing film industry. We work closely with the Doha Film Institute, uh, and they're producing uh, all kinds of work. It used to be that the television and films in the region tended to be more uh, religious programming, uh, you know, the the life of the prophet Muhammad, uh, old historical melodramas. And it's moved away from that to game shows, to science shows, to more news programming. And then a lot of uh, animation is happening in the region. So you get this uh, really lively set of, uh, of television and programs. And then many people watch on the small screen on their smartphone. And uh, it's led to a more diverse kind of diet of media. I noticed that a lot of people think that there is fake news in media, and uh, 7 out of 10 see fake news in these seven countries in the Middle East, and trust in the news has fallen. Uh, it's fallen dramatically in the United States. You juxtapose the U.S. with it, and the U.S. has like a 33% confidence in the news, and that puts us on a tier with the lowest countries in the Middle East. Uh, Egypt and Tunisia are right about there as well. Are people having the same kind of problems with the news that we are? Oh, very much so, and for good reason. In, after the blockade of Qatar, for example, content farms in the UAE and in, and in the Saudi Arabia began producing just demonstrably fake stories, of coups that never happened, uh, government decisions that supposedly were made and were not. And so people became very cynical about that and also pretty sophisticated at watching what they were seeing come out of there. There's been an information war in that part of the Middle East in the Gulf, and uh, it's been very, very uh, debilitating in terms of uh, truth and information and verified material. So Cutter's reaction to that has been one to be as honest and open as possible and to take on these fake stories. Uh, so that's part of it. The other part is that you've got several regimes in the region that are quite draconian and uh, very hostile toward media and the press, and uh, uh, they themselves sometimes generate some uh, uh, fake coverage uh, as a part of their national information campaign. So it's a very transparent, in many ways, effort to win hearts and minds, but oftentimes with incorrect information or highly distorted information. So that makes our our role as a school of preparing people in media, public affairs, and in entertainment to be quite vigilant and to help uh, our students learn how to discern truth from falsehood and uh, accurate information from that which is more fanciful. What are some of the challenges of teaching students in the Middle East journalism? Is it pretty much the same fundamentals or are there different wrinkles? 
No, the fundamentals are the same, I think, in terms of how to tell stories and generate news and to find uh, ways of, of verifying information. But the difference is there is not a as robust a media law and freedom of expression isn't expressed as it is in our Constitution and the First Amendment in such an absolutist way. And so uh, there are many things that are verboten. You can't in most of the regions say anything negative about a chief of state without uh, being fearful of uh, some kind of sanction. Also, in many of the countries of the region, libel is a criminal act rather than a civil tort as it is in the United States. And so one who, if you're involved in a a libel or defamation case of some kind, the chances of going to jail are there as opposed to simply paying a fine. So there are some differences there. There's also an attitude of uh, one has to be very careful about taking pictures of people without their permission. Uh, there's a lot of resistance to nudity and to uh, some of the kinds of aspects of a, of a more libertine culture that we have in the United States that uh, isn't welcome there, although even that in some ways is changing. So it's in play, I would say, the whole nature of freedom of expression. But our role as a school is to try to promote freedom of expression and independent media and show the advantages of it. And we've had a lot of success with that. Our students have gone off to very good media outlets in the region and elsewhere. They work in ministries of government. And the quality, I think, of information people are getting, not perfect, but has gotten better as a result of this effort. What's really fun to watch in the news in the Middle East? Oh, many things. I think as anywhere, politics as sport, uh, almost what the jockeying that goes on between and among people, the way certain dictators present themselves is, uh, I'm not saying it's fun, but uh, it's <laughs> intriguing uh, to see that kind of thing go on. And I think the way people are uh, very much yearning to express themselves, uh, hip hop has become quite popular in the region. Uh, most of the American forms of popular culture are also popular, and you see different local variations on the theme. Uh, and that's exciting to see people, uh, you know, experimenting with music, with video games. Uh, there's a lot of interest in sport. And, of course, uh, sports is incredibly popular, all kinds of sport. Qatar has something like 120 teams in different realms and all kinds of Olympic-level teams. And having gotten the World Cup has made them even more excited. We also see things like camel races and falcon uh, trials and all kinds of uh, exotic to us at least, exotic aspects of, of an old desert culture that's sort of touching a modern world. Are the students coming from other places? Do you ever worry about where they're going back to and the conditions they're going to face? Well, we do. Our students, about uh, 50% come from the state of Qatar. The rest come from about, I think it's 40 countries. This year we had applicants from 70 countries and all over the Middle East and Sub-Saharan Africa, South Asia, East Asia, the United States, Europe, elsewhere. And so we do worry because they are being prepared, we think, to navigate in and around media law and regulation no matter where they are in the world. So our courses in media law and regulation are much more expansive than what you'd have in the United States because we, we want them to know and understand what local regulations are and how to function within those situations. But we've had people go off uh, into some very dangerous uh, situations uh, in Egypt uh, only recently. and People have been down covering uh, some of the issues in Yemen and elsewhere in the region. And so we do try to prepare people for that kind of risk that they take, although most journalists don't take that much risk, but some who go into war zones certainly do. And uh, we want them to be ready to work anywhere in the world. And that's one of the hallmarks 
hallmarks of our school is that you can come to school there and get a Northwestern education and be prepared for the global experience. What's been the best thing about doing this in Qatar for all these years? You've been there since 2011. I think the greatest achievement is our alumni. We have about uh, 350 now, and they're spread out uh, in all kinds of media organizations and industries of government. 30% have gone to graduate school. But I would say within that, the greatest single achievement, I think, is the empowerment of women. Uh, About 70% of our students are women, many of whom would really not have taken this path. They would have gone to a different kind of school. They would have followed a different route, I think. And this has been wonderful to see them develop and begin to play a significant role in their society when that wasn't true before. And the 70% number, that's really high. Is that because a lot of women, they don't want to leave the region as much as men do to attend college? Well, yes. Initially, um, the men were allowed to go almost anywhere to go to school. Women were strongly discouraged, and if not even allowed sometimes to leave the country. And so they didn't get education of the highest quality. And so the Qatar Foundation, under some very strong leadership, brought in six American universities to try to change that situation. And it has. I think it's had a, a huge impact. And now more and more of the men want to come locally as well. But uh, it used to be that women couldn't really leave the country. And that fortunately has changed. And women are now going off to graduate school. And that's something else that would not have been happening 10 or 20 years ago. Everett Dennis is the dean and CEO of Northwestern University in Qatar. He's a journalism professor, and we've been talking about their media survey that they do of uh, seven Middle East countries and a bit about uh, what it's like to teach in Qatar. Thanks a lot for joining us. Thanks very much for having me. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk with former U.S. Defense Secretary Chuck Hagel. He's in town, and we'll see what he thinks about where U.S. foreign policy is going these days. Chuck Hagel tomorrow on Worldview. Also, we'll have Global Notes, our look at international music, and we'll talk with Gogol Bordello, whose gypsy punk sounds are coming to Chicago this weekend at the Riviera Theater. They've got a fantastic backstory, and we'll talk with the gypsy punkers tomorrow on Worldview. Also, don't forget, Worldview is going to broadcast live from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs Global Cities Forum. It's next week, and we'll be broadcasting on Wednesday and Friday material from the Chicago Council on Global Affairs Global Cities Forum. You can get more information at thechicagocouncil.org. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Jenny Friedland and Ashish Valentine for production assistance. Thank you to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.